You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The poet Charles Hughes' first collection of poems, 2014's Cave Art, wasn't published until he was in his 60s after more than three decades working as a lawyer. I read that book almost by accident to review it for the Englewood Review of Books and was surprised and delighted by its treatment of the fragility of love in a world of death. Now, seven years later, Hughes has published a second collection. It's called The Evening Sky, and it's available now from Wise Blood Books. I'm so glad it's brought him to Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, Charles. Thanks, Michael. Good to be with you. I'd like to start by giving our listeners a taste of your poetry. Would you mind reading your poem, Late Bloomer, for us? Uh, Yes, I'd be glad to. Late Bloomer. Forty-eight hours it took the trees to go from black to green, the grass to match, the tulips to amass in sunlit patchwork congeries, reds, yellows, lavenders, and whites. Finally, springs up, but slept so late now pressing to accelerate the pace at which its day ignites. All of which calls to mind a man whose PhD had been delayed. Why, I guess I was afraid to ask, and who at last began teaching at 50, no doubt aware he might redeem or he might not, the time he'd lost for doing what he once joked was his cross to bear. His course on Christian thought was work, Long books to read, two papers, three exams, one more than normal. He got dubbed the human question mark. Aptly, his posture signaling stress. Stoop shoulders, tall, 6'3", rail thin. He'd stand sideways and lecture in his tight wound way, short on success. One morning, May had jumped ahead from early July to full November. Cold, whipping rain, I still remember. And I remember how he said, just after letting the class know, he'd learned he'd soon be unemployed, while senseless weather rendered void blossoms, thing meant at least for show. With God, all things are possible. No faintest note of irony, evenly, unselfconsciously, more eye contact than usual. What I love about that poem is its unexpected bleakness. The, the title suggests something optimistic, and then the poem delivers it, and then there's this awful reversal two-thirds of the way through. So I wonder, you, you say he says with God all things are possible with, without the faintest note of irony, but how ironic do you mean for that line to be? Well, maybe I should start an answer to that question by saying I didn't mean this poem to be any kind of philosophical or theological assertion about irony. Um, I think I wanted the poem to embody an experience, um, as I do with a lot of my poems, I think. Um, in this case, the experience of being part of the college class that it describes Um, Having said that, I can't deny that there is a a certain irony implicit in that final stanza. And as you say, the poem itself uh, acknowledges that. I just like 
you have this image, and it seems like such a um, such a human image of this person who succeeds despite the odds, and then fails despite his success. And I, I just wonder if. I mean, you say you're not trying to make a statement about irony, but I wonder if, if in some sense, the shape of this poem, this this six, this failure, success, failure again, if you see that as, in some sense, the shape of human life itself. Um, yes. I do think irony is a definite aspect of our reality. And, and I wonder if, there might not be a certain irony that is felt most strongly by um, people like myself who believe in a good God. At least as a Christian, you know, as Christians were taught that God is good, that God is the creator of a world that at least originally was good. Um, The Bible says that with God, all things are possible, and we expect these will be good things, I think. At least I do when I hear those words. Um, but when we look around, we see that bad things are always happening and seem to be always possible. So it's a very uh, poignant, I would say, to say the least, um, irony um, how do we, as believers, live with that contradiction? Your professor here, who I assume this is a true story, right? Yes. Yeah. He, In he, its essentials, yes. He, he has a kind of Don Quixote quality to him, wouldn't you say? Like this, this with all <laughs> things are possible, he says without any kind of irony, even though he's just essentially had his head cracked in. And and so I, I feel like as a, as a reader of the poem, as a Christian reader of the poem, my, I'm faced with a very similar conundrum as I am when I read Don Quixote, which is, do you admire this guy or do you pity him or do you do both? And that's the kind of mystery of human life. Yeah, I guess I opt for the latter. Because I did admire him. And even at a young age, felt sorry for what had happened to him. Well, both this book and your debut collection, Cave Art, feature a number of poems that are essentially stories about being a lawyer. Uh, and I, I would just love to hear about the process of writing those poems. What what did you hope to accomplish with them? And, and did you have a different conception of what you were doing with those poems than with more conventional with poems with more conventional subject matter, I should say, because I mean, it's not that they're unconventional poems exactly, but the you, there aren't a lot of poems about being a lawyer, I guess is what I'm saying, in in, uh, yeah. in, in the grand scheme of poetry. Right. I'm not sure I really know uh, what I hope to accomplish sure. um, with the poems that come out of my time as a lawyer. Um, but I think the uh, maybe the impulse for the poems was a sense that uh, I shouldn't be completely silent about the work I did for so much of my adult life 
Um, you know, in many ways, I'm deeply grateful for at least certain aspects of my legal career. And maybe the poems um, have been a way of at least indirectly expressing uh, gratitude for that career. Mm-hmm. Just by acknowledgement. I said that your first collection wasn't published until after your retirement. Were you writing poetry the whole time you were working as a lawyer? Oh, no. Um, at least not in a serious way. Uh, I didn't begin being serious about trying to write poems until hmm, just a few years before I did retire. I read poetry before that and wrote a few things for myself and my kids. Um, But no, I I wasn't really writing, um, certainly not for that whole period. Do your do your former colleagues have they read your your poetry? <laughs> um, uh, not that I know of, with one exception. Um, uh, I have a friend, uh, and we were partners together in the law firm, and um, we've kept up with each other and um, talk regularly on the phone now during the pandemic. Um, but yeah, he's been kind to uh, buy the evening sky and read the poems. But he's not a great fan of poetry. He tells me. <laughs> he's a fan of you, though. <laughs> he's a loyal friend, at least. I'm especially interested in the lawyer poem poem called uh, A Lawyer in Mid-Career Composes a Retirement Speech for His Mentor. And I should point out to our our listeners that many of your poems have these these very long very specific titles that are that are funny um like like the uh, funny is not exactly the right word kind of um delightful i guess is the the best word it doesn't make you laugh out loud but i I love a poem with a long specific title so uh, (laughs) a lawyer in mid-career composes a retirement speech for his mentor and i'm interested in that poem because the process you describe uh of writing that speech seems so similar to the process of writing poetry. So I, I wonder if you feel like your years at a law firm prepared you for your second career as a poet in some meaningful way. Um, well, there may, there may have been some preparation going on, but I wouldn't say um, it was a linear, you know, or continuous process. Um, uh, certainly not a conscious one on my part. Um, I mean, when I began to be serious about writing poems, uh, that new work all felt very uh, fresh and new to me. Um, sort of makes me think, you know, there's a famous uh, George Herbert poem called uh, The Flower. And a couple lines in there says... Um, and now in age, I bud again. After so many deaths, I live and write. That's sort of like what the experience was. You know, it was just very uh, like something brand new. 
I guess I have so little understanding of what lawyers do on kind of a day-to-day basis. You know, I, I, my, my father-in-law was a lawyer, but he, he had retired before I met him. And other than that, I don't know that I'm, I've ever really met a lawyer, um, at least never talked to one. And so I, I just wonder if there's something about the process of, because being a lawyer, at least on television, is so much about crafting an argument, right? Um, it's about doing a certain sort of research and paying a certain sort of attention and making an argument to persuade people. And I, I wonder if maybe, um, maybe poetry might work that same way in a certain way. But then again, I may be totally misunderstanding what uh, what lawyers do. Yeah. No, I think um, it's quite possible. Um, although, you know, there are lots of different ki- types of lawyers. And, you know, I think the type you're describing um, would be the trial lawyer, litigator right. type of lawyer. Um, and that was not me. I was in uh, business and corporate practice. So a lot of my time was spent um, drafting agreements and, uh, you know, doing negotiations and things that those kinds of lawyers do. But, you know, constant clients dealing with government regulators, that kind of thing. But still a totally different, um, a totally different skill set than what you, what you exercise now as a poet. Um, very different. I mean, you know, both involve words. Sure. To a great extent, but I think in much different ways. How so? Well, I think, um, at least in the kind of law I practice, and I think this would be true in different fields of law, um, lawyers trying to make use of those words, you know, for a particular end. And I think in poetry, it's a much more... um, unconscious process and I think uh, a poet at least should have more respect for the words and for the um, for what is being expressed or represented by those words and much less willing to um, slap things, or um, what I want to say, manipulate his or her readers or audience. Or manipulate the language, for that matter, right? The, the, the language kind of becomes an end in itself. Am I putting words into your mouth? No, that is, that's exactly what I do mean to say. I think language is... Um, and ended itself with poems. And poems are, I mean, the way I think of them anyway, they're, they're made things. Um, and 
they're meant to acquire their own existence in the world. And I think one of the worst things for a poem is any degree of you know, authenticity or dishonesty. Mm-hmm. Which I guess dishonesty is a term you might think of in terms of litigation, but authenticity is, is probably not really a... Not really a criterion that makes any kind of sense for that kind of work, is it? Um, I agree. It's not. I mean, you don't. Yeah, you wouldn't hear a bunch of litigators sitting around critiquing somebody else's argument in those terms. <laughs> I don't think you would. I never did. Well, uh, would you read your poem October nineteen fifty eight for us? Yes, I'd be happy to. October 1958. Braves were in Milwaukee. Warren Spahn was a new name to me. I still can see him kick his right leg toward first base and on to home. Prettiest delivery. Left-handed, overhand, high kick but smooth. Same motion every time and finishing as if the hitters all out-hit Babe Ruth. Squared up. Knees flexed, ready for anything. Love caught mumps like in second grade. It was because of Spawn, because of Lou Burdett, Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews, and because Miss Loomis idolized the Braves and let us listen to the first few innings of games one and two that I ruled the Braves win that year. But no, they weren't quite good enough. Yankees in seven, back class discipline. This was the Cold War era. The next day, science had aged. We learned the atom bomb and fission in an elementary way. The end of World War II could not have come as early otherwise, Miss Loomis stressed. Plus, deaths were therefore fewer in the war by millions. Everything was for the best, she said. Comfort I hadn't heard before. That day, we also had an air raid drill involving crouching underneath our desks, recess, redux, which, with its real-world thrill, dropped discipline in favor of burlesques. Desks tipped and shoved to giggles, a soft rain of paper bonds, each shrilly marked by boom. Miss Loomis, trying gamely but in vain, to squeeze herself into too little room. She obviously felt a deep sense of duty. She is, I'd say today, one reason I appreciate a kind of baseball beauty and recognize a kind of grown-up lie. Thank you. This is another poem with a a kind of brutal twist in it. You're talking about 1950s baseball, which is one of our culture's greatest objects of nostalgia. And then all of a sudden you're talking about nuclear war and adults' lies about the world. And then at the end, you seem to have a certain affection for this woman who made this awful moral rationalization about Hiroshima. And this is kind of a vague question, um, but is it right to extrapolate from the incidents in this poem to some sort of broader view that you have about our relationship to the past? Because this is a topic I think of a lot, and I think a lot of people right now are, are thinking about a lot, about the, this kind of 
um, pleasant or acidic look back at the supposed glory days of our nation? Mm-hmm. Um, I probably should begin by saying, you know, I have a strong tendency to be very nostalgic about 1950s baseball. I mean, sure. <laughs> I could probably name most of the starting lineup of the White Sox 1959 World Series team. They were really my team, the White Sox. Um, but your question it makes me remember um, something... Uh, David Jones, the British poet of the last century, said uh, about poems that um, they can make the past present. Um, And he thought this was one of the ways in which poetry and art can be sacramental. Um, I'd say poems can at least be honest about the past. um, And can help maybe, humanity come into a healthier relationship with our present. Um, In one way, poetry tends to be countercultural. Is in doing just that, since, you know, I think as human beings, we have a tendency, maybe especially in America, um, to prefer to see the past nostalgically, you know, through rose-colored glasses, which ultimately is dishonest. And so we really never come to terms with it. But this poem won't let people do the opposite either, right? Because you love Miss Loomis in a, in a certain way. You appreciate her. Um, you're, you're, not, you're not allowing her to be defined by this lie that she tells that she tells the second graders, right? Like this is, this is, um, she's more complex than that. And you allow her to be more complex than that. And it seems to me there's an argument there. Argument's not the right word, but there's a, there's a, there's a broader view there on how we think of the era you're talking about. Yeah. I'm not sure what the broader argument would be, but I think, I mean, isn't it simply the case that people are complex that people are even contradictory and that none of us is defined by um, our views on one particular matter. Isn't that true? Well, I I think that's true. I think it's true, but I think increasingly um, our our culture really on, on both sides of the political aisle want to define people by their by their views um, on on this or that issue and, and kind of dismiss them because of it. And I, I, I see in this poem and some other poems in this collection and other poems by other people, like a way out of that, that this kind of roundness that poetry is able to give the past um, mm-hmm. seems like it could be, again, I don't want to make it sound um, like an argument. I don't want to make it sound like a weapon, but it seems like it could be used as a weapon against that kind of, uh, social mm. oversimplification, either in the direction of nostalgia or in what gets called cancel culture yep. or whatever you want to think about it. Um, I hope so. I'd be very happy to think that it could be. Um, I mean, it's dehumanizing to um, 
define others um, by what they do on a particular day or what they think about a particular issue. Um, and I think um, we'd do better to, uh, to take a broader view. You also have a few um, more directly political poems here. You have poems about the National School walkout in 2018 and about the Orlando nightclub shooting in 2016. I don't usually like political poetry very much, but I do like these poems. So I, I would love to hear you talk about the difficulties and advantages of writing poems about current events, especially really heavily politicized ones, um, like these poems about uh, gun crime. Yeah, um, I agree that uh, poetry doesn't tend to be at its best when um, when addressing politics, at least if we're thinking of politics defined very narrowly. Um, I think Robert Frost said that he preferred poems that dealt with medical woes, um, his way of saying, you know, non-political issues and problems. And I guess I do too, but it can be a fine line, right? Um, to me, though, I mean, issues of large-scale human violence, um, which those two poems of mine that you allude to deal with, um, to me, the, that issue falls into the immedicable woes category, especially given the rampant and large-scale kind of violence that um, now pretty much seems to be a permanent fact of life in our society. It's just sort of a, a given that you walk out into the, our world and um, that's just one of the realities you may confront. So while it certainly has its political aspects to it, to me it's, it's a deeper thing than that. And so I guess, I mean, I tend to avoid writing at least narrowly political poems, but I guess that subject seemed to me uh, one that should be open to poetry. Well, and I mean, we should we should let the listener know that um, they're not political in the sense that you're making some sort of stand for gun control at the end of the poems. Like you're not offering any kind of political solution. But I think right. it's I think it's very clear, especially in the courage of children, the one about the national school walkout, that your your sympathies are with these students who are um, protesting in favor of stricter gun okay. control. That's true. I think you I think you thread that needle very nicely because I mean, uh, uh, again, it, it seems Thank to me a, a, a tendency of contemporary poetry to write kind of ham-fistedly about um, about political matters, and it's it's not that those things shouldn't be written about, but it's that if if poetry is supposed to give you a broader view of them, uh, it's right. it's hard to square that with a with an explicit political commitment, which I don't really see in these poems. Your commitments to like the humanity of the yeah. people you're writing about. Yeah, I I completely agree, um, and I don't think you know that being 
narrowly political is something that poetry tends to do very well. I guess what you're saying. When I've tried to write narrowly political poems, they usually don't turn out very well. Um, so maybe maybe it's just that I'm not very good at it. So when, when I see other people do it better than I can, um, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with it. Well, that may be my case, too. I've written a few that um, never saw the light of day. Well, and the, the other thing, there, I, I think there's a couple of them in um, this collection, but I know there's quite a few more in Cave Art where um, – the politics you're talking about are, are the politics of the Vietnam War, which is at such a distance now that it might be easier to to write about without uh, without turning into a um, kind of raving political maniac. Although even even then, my my recollection of those poems is it's very much about uh, a specific human being and what his experience in Vietnam or being afraid he's going to go to Vietnam. It's it's not like uh, you know it's 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 not it's not a uh, folk protest music let me put it that way all right well it's late in the day for that the centerpiece of this collection is a very personal uh six-part poem about the death of your father um and I, I would just like to hear about your your process of conceiving and writing those poems did you mean them to be a cycle did they emerge one by one to be assembled later like how did how did that um that little suite of poems come into being Um, I remember I wrote the first poem. I mean, it's basically a sequence of six individual poems. Um, and I remember I wrote the first poem in a sequence fairly soon after my father died. Um, and at the time, I had no idea of writing more. Um, and I'm not sure I even had a very clear idea um, that I would seek to publish that poem. Um, then, you know, some months went by and I wrote a poem that turned out to be the, what is now the final poem in that sequence, but still with no idea uh, of continuing on with more poems. Um, and then another um, five or six months at least, I think, went by, um, and I started to feel I had more to say. And uh, the rest of the poems then just kind of started to emerge and um, came out fairly quickly. How did you decide the order to put them in? Because from my perspective, not knowing you, not knowing your relationship with your father, it seems like each new poem corrects the one before it. In the sense that, like, you, you read the first poem, and not knowing you, and not knowing your father, I got the sense that you were very close to him. But then, as each poem progresses, you, you start to introduce these, like, tensions in your relationship with him. And it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth. So I think, I, I was a little surprised to hear you didn't write them in this order, because I, I had assumed that you... Uh, you, you you were kind of meaning to to make those revelations one by one, um, but I guess not. Well, it pleases me to hear you say that that's how you read them. Um, but no, I, I wasn't really conscious of ordering the poems um, 
as they were being written. Um, yeah, I don't, maybe I don't want to say all that much more than the poems do sure. about the relationship between my father and me, but we did have a close relationship. And yet, at the same time, there were strong and difficult tensions. And I wanted to find a way of um, embodying that reality in this sequence, all the while um, affirming that I love my dad. Mm -hmm. I think they work very well as as both a tribute to him because you you get information about what he was like as a, as a child um, and and what he was like growing up and what he was like with you. A tribute to him and also um, the the kind of it, it shows very well the kind of difficulties that we all have with our parents that that these relationships that are so essential and so we're, we're they're so um deep at the heart of who we are are never perfect and in their imperfections they make us imperfect and and i, I think the i think these these six, six poems do a really really good job of uh of of laying that out and and exploring your kind of feelings about what it means to be close to someone and have that tension there nevertheless. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. I didn't want to ask too many specific questions uh, about about your your father. So let's let's talk more generally about poetry and grief um, because I have lived a fairly charmed life for the most part. But I am coming to the age where a lot of the older members of my family are starting to get serious diseases and to die. So I, I think this poem cycle came to me at the right time of my life. And I'm wondering what role you think reading and writing poetry plays in dealing with grief and loss. Well, I think, I mean, I guess maybe it's almost a cliche for me to say this, but I think it's really true that naming grief and loss, you know, the specific grief and loss being suffered can be uh, a part of healing and that poems can help with this. I mean, I remember Richard Wilbur um, said that um, inarticulateness itself can be a form of pain. Um, so, yes, I, I do think poems can help in dealing with grief and loss, but poetry um, in this context, as in other contexts, can seem somewhat counter to our instincts, I think. Um, in a culture like ours, you know, always seeking to hurry on from grief, um, which often considers grief uh, a kind of pathology. So I do think poems can be very helpful, but sometimes I think it takes a certain will and um, effort to let them be helpful. Because they open up as many wounds as they close, right? Certainly possible, yes. 
Elegy for my father seems like one example of a broader treatment of memory and pain that runs through this collection. You have one poem called The Lord God Gives Us Memories. Uh, but so often in your work, memory seems to be the source of pain rather than of comfort. So what are we supposed to do with all these memories that come flooding back without rhyme or reason? And what role does art play in all of this? Well, I don't know if I have a, a good or at least a comprehensive answer to those questions. Uh, I do think memory is important. You know, it's, it's how we know who we are. Um, I think most people's memories will contain some amount of pain, but also um, memories of good things, of love, of joy, of beauty. Um, and I do think poems and art can help to deal with pain and grief, as I've said, simply by articulating the pain. But I also think that art, um, maybe like dreams, um, can help to integrate the pain um, into the larger scale of our um, of our lives, um, which are filled with many other things, as I say, of many happier things. Well, let's hear uh, one more poem. Uh, would you read "Late Summer, Late Afternoon"? late summer, late afternoon. I think this as I'm watering, watching the way the water borrows a little light to which to cling. The deepest things aren't always sorrows. Willful blindness, this not seeing. I saw a boy the other day, he's maybe three, dancing, just being a child who's lost himself in play arms overhead like rigging, face upturned, eyes blank, legs tacking hard, zigzag blown by drunken grace. Then quit it, loud, across the yard, to no effect that I could see while walking by, that is, until the boy's father, presumably, with one mean stiff arm, struck him still. The water, which is partly light, glitters on the dark junipers, festive, live, Christmas-like, despite shadows the sun for now deferves. Thus positing as joy will do conditions contrary to fact, Camus' plague world turns plain untrue, that child's receding, inexact. Water is something else. I can't its sheen, its evergreen scent, the spell, its whispering to each thirsty plant. I can't not feel all will be well. This feeling comes as real as pain, lasts a few moments, disappears. The boy was looking up again, eyes filling with forsaken tears. Thank you. This poem seems to me to be a kind of metaphysical battle for the depth of being. Is there meaning deep down things, as Gerard Manley Hopkins puts it, or is there nothing but cruelty and suffering? The, the struggle seems the essential piece here, because the poem finds you believing in meaning for this very brief time, 
before having it wrested away from you again by this this horrible thing that this boy's father does to him for for no apparent reason but am i right to think that the very fact of your writing the struggle down gives the positive answer the final word i think you're quite right to say that the positive answer has the final word albeit you know in this case the unspoken final word in this poem um, I mean, the mere fact of poetry's existence, in my mind, is some affirmation of this. Um, Hopkins certainly acknowledged the sufferings of the world in his poems, uh, even in the poem of his that you quote. Um, as a Christian, I believe that behind the present world, you know, the present world that we take in every day through our senses, which is so full of suffering and sorrow, um, behind that world, there is a magnificent other world from which suffering and sorrows have been excluded and where love reigns supreme. Um, but in this present world. It's hard to go on believing that. Faith is hard in this world, uh, and poetry helps me with that. I guess it brings us back to that poem, Late Bloomer, that we talked about at the very beginning of the episode. The, the, you say that for the Christian, there's another layer of irony, right? Which is that the, the horrible world that we see, the world that, that seems so horrible to us at times, is a kind of cover for the real world where things are not horrible, where yes. things are made right. It's a, it's a kind yes, of, it's, exactly. it's not the irony, like it's not a sneering irony. It's like a joyful, blessed irony. <laughs> Very well said. Absolutely. Is this a real story that, that you, you actually I, saw this kid played in the front yard and his father come out and cuff him? I did, yeah. That's I, just I was just awful. Taking a walk. <laughs> I just can't believe he did that in front of other people. I don't know. Like I said, I lived a pretty charmed I'm life. Not, I'm not sure he was. <laughs> I'm not sure he was aware that anybody saw. You know, I was just kind of walking by on the sidewalk. But I mean, we we all know things like that happen. I mean, and 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 that does seem to be the central struggle of a lot of the poems. Um, in this collection and in cave art for that matter, this, this notion of this kind of banal everyday cruelty and the sense that there is rising above it. I hope so. And it pleases me that you would say that, that you perceive that. Well, I've been steering the conversation so far, but here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we talked about that you'd like our listeners to know? Hmm. Well, let me just mention again, I mentioned David Jones earlier. Let me mention him again, um, just by way of commending his work to others who might be interested. Um I'm only in the process myself of discovering his work, um, but 
He's a very interesting figure. He was a soldier in World War I. Uh, one of his most famous poems is a long book-length poem called In Parenthesis About um, His Experience in World War I. Um, I have read that T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden were both great admirers of his. Eliot actually was his editor at Faber and Faber. Um, but he also wrote essays um, about such things as, you know, the relationship between religious faith and art. Uh, Jones was, in addition to being a poet, he was uh, a visual artist. He was an engraver and a painter probably best known um, for his visual art. Um, but he had lots of ideas, uh, very interesting ideas to me, about the relationship of religious faith to art and about the sacramentality of art. Um, so as I say, I'm only just discovering his work myself, but for anyone interested in such things, um, he's uh, perhaps not... Um, all that widely known, but certainly would be worth getting to know. I have an essay by him called Art and Sacrament in an Anthology, and I think I'll go back and read that yeah. this afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the big one, I think. I've never read anything out. by him. But I must have liked this essay because I have notes in the uh, in the margins. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Well, we've been talking to the poet Charles Hughes. His latest book is The Evening Sky. It's out now from Wise Blood Books. There'll be a link to buy that on the show notes for this episode at christianhumanist.org. You can also visit Charles's website at charleshughespoetry.com. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening. <laughs>